Listen, open or tap to Luke 23. That's where we're going to be this morning. Jesus is getting buried. That's the passage that we're in. Seven verses that, that talk about that. If you've ever been to a graveside service, I want you to think about it. I want you to go back in your mind to it. Uh, the last one I happened to be at, it was raining, much like a day like today. Uh, you know, I've been to more than my fair share of graveside services. I was asked to do a service of a woman's dad when I worked at a different church. Um, I didn't really know this woman at all, but she came to me and said, you know, when, whenever you've preached, I've been able to hear the good news of God really clearly, so I want you to do my dad's service, and, um, and I, I want you to uh, clearly preach about the hope beyond the grave. I met with her and her husband, and even at that meeting, they, they reiterated, they said, none of our family are Christians. We really want you to clearly talk about the hope uh, beyond the, the grave and just to just, just speak it clearly. I assured them I would try and do my best. And, and then the, the, the woman said this. She said, one thing before you agree. She said, I have a brother who hates everything about Jesus. He's going to be there in the front row at the service. He is a rash person, and he's even a violent person. Um, and I'm not really sure how he'll respond. So I wanted you to know that before you agree to do this service. You know, when the stakes are high... And we're talking about matters of life and death. How much are you willing to risk to honor Jesus? You know, the funny thing about tests like this, they're, they're often in the form of that dreaded pop quiz, right? You teachers are snickering right now. You love to pop little quizzes on, on students when we're least expecting it. No time to prepare, no time to study. It's just, it's just an in-the-moment sense of where a student is at. We really don't know how secure our faith is. We really don't know how loyal our love is until it's tested. This is true in our relationships with other people. This is true in our walk with God. On this occasion, I passed. I stopped and thought about it. I really stopped and thought about it for a moment. And, and I have this overactive imagination. I actually had time to let my overactive imagination let things go really, really bad at this service, complete with slow-mo and diving and matrix, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and after about three whole seconds, I looked at the man and the woman, and I said, I'm your guy. I will preach my heart out about the hope beyond the grave. I'm still here, so the service went better than my imagination. You know, one of the job hazards of being a pastor is you're around dead bodies a lot. Uh, if you feel the call to ministry, just pay attention to that, that people will invite you into difficult situations. You know, being near dead bodies is something that uh, most of us don't look forward to and we don't really, like, aspire to, uh, but you do grow a little bit more used to it. We've talked about in this room uh, that our bodies are a little bit like old wetsuits, right? A, a, a body laying there lifeless is a little bit like an old wetsuit. I want you to take your hands, I want you to move your neck, open your eyes, close them for a second. These bodies we have are wonderful things. I mean, they're actually magical things, amazing things, these bodies of ours. And yet, they're wearing out, they're decaying, they're breaking down until one day... They're done. <laughs> but we aren't done. Because we aren't the sum total of our physical parts. There's an inner life and there is an outer life. And one of these will last forever. And one of these is on the clock. 
Some of our clock is ticking a little bit faster than we, than we thought it, it used to. You know, um, Forrest Gump's mama had a lot of things to say that would help her son make sense of the world. Mama always said, and now you can fill in your own favorite with your own little Forrest accent, but one of the sayings that Mama said was this. Mama always said that death was a part of life. You know, Mama was right on this one, but Mama missed the best part. You see, death is a part of life, but death is not the end of life. Huge difference, Mama. Remember, Luke is writing for a very specific reason. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is writing to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's followed all things closely, and he's written in order, an, an orderly account for the most excellent Theophilus so that he could have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. You see, Luke makes it very crystal clear at the start of his gospel account that he's not writing that Jesus was born once upon a time, but rather that Jesus was born into time, a very specific time and place and people. Luke is not writing fairy tale. Luke is recording history. You know, we've been looking at truth that sets us free. But remember, like a key, the truth sets you free only if you use it. You see, keys don't unleash their freeing power if they are stuffed in a drawer or worse, if they are turned into a decoration. If they're put on our front lawn or hung on our wall once a month during the year to be admired and looked at and discussed and sung about. Truth's unlocking power must be put into practice. That's what we're here to do this morning. Today, Jesus is buried in our text. I want to look at two things. One, just the theological implications of burial. How important burial is to the overall plan of God. And then we're going to look at two unlikely followers who who continue to be disciples, who continue to follow even in the dark, even in the disappointment. Do you think there's a message for us Christians in 2020 of how to follow Jesus when things aren't going according to our plan, when it seems like the whole world is being turned upside down? That's what we're going to see today in these seven verses. You know, preaching through the cross passages in the manger season has provided some fresh insight into the absolutely tireless love of God for sinful people. So, Jesus is buried. Let me just jump to one verse in our passage, Luke 23, verse 53. It says, then he took it, talking about Jesus' body, down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. The story takes a very dark turn. Hope is gone. Hope is literally dead and now buried, put away. There's a central truth that if you're following along in the notes, I just wrote it for you because I want to make sure that you get it. I want to make sure you see it. But it simply says this, listen carefully, God is at work all the time, on his time. 
God is at work all the time, and it's on His time. And I would say even in the dark. Maybe a better way of saying it is especially in the dark. If God's always at work, then especially doesn't really make sense, but it feels like as we look back on history, especially in the dark times, God is doing some of his most miraculous work. So how is God at work? Let's look at the burial of Jesus. Jesus paves the way for resurrection by being buried. I want you to think about the word prerequisite for a moment. You college students are like, easy, got it. Why? Because there's prerequisite classes that you need before you can take other ones. Here's what the word means. A thing that is required as a prior condition for something else to happen or exist. Let me give you an example from our text. The idea that before Jesus rises from the dead, he must be what? What's What's the prerequisite? He must be dead and buried. Right To come back to life, you have to be dead. To rise from the grave, you have to be buried. So what he's doing here is all a part of God's plan. Jesus' burial is rich with meaning, and as our text shows us today by the people's response, its meaning is veiled. It's hidden. It's misunderstood. We have so many great Christmas carols that teach us all kinds of great theology. Born that man no more may die. You know, we'd never guess what the significance of Jesus' burial was if it were a silent drama. If it just happened, we, we would think it's a really sad thing. But we aren't living a silent drama. It is a story with a script. Christians, or Christmas is the eternal word taking on human flesh. This is such a big idea. I want to camp out on this for just a moment. You know, Christians are really big on words. Books, seminars, word studies, Bible, conferences, memorization. We are big on words, and we should be. That's a good thing. But I want you to think about it for a minute. God didn't come in the form of a book He came in the form of a baby. We're big on words. That's a good thing. I teach that. I press into that. We're going to be, we're doing that right now. But as much as that's true, there's a second side to this. You know, again, God could have shown up as an idea. He could have shown up as a dictionary. He could have shown up as a conference or a seminar. Those who take the best notes win, right? You, sir, you take your place in glory. Because you have notated, parsed, and accurately detailed every idea correctly. You get into heaven. That's not God's plan. He didn't come as a dictionary. The eternal word became flesh. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Don't leave one part out or the other. Christianity has always been about word and action. Speaking and deeds, talking and doing. Why is this? Because God is a speaking, doing God. It's woven into who he is. What is all talk and no doing? Well, talk is cheap, right? It takes deeds to validate our words. What are are deeds all by themselves? They're completely ambiguous. It takes words to explain their meaning. In the beginning... God spoke, and it was so. Do you see word and deed? God spoke, but he didn't stop at speaking. He then created. 
word and deed. Jesus comes speaking and doing. Another song we sing, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Do you see how big words are? It's good, Christian, that we're into words. But here he is, appearing, walking amongst us. We adore Jesus, not just for his being, but for his speaking. And not just for his words, but for his actions. The whole interplay through Luke has been marveling at what he says, the ideas he puts forth, and the actions that he does to illustrate what he's talking about. In fact, just like music, when there's rests in music, it actually gives context to the notes being played. We marvel at what Jesus doesn't say. We marvel when Jesus is inactive in a situation where the rest of us would be frantic. So don't divorce what God has joined together. Don't be an all-word Christian. Don't be an all-doing Christian that doesn't pay attention to the word. Why Jesus died and is buried is lost on his followers. Its meaning is veiled and hidden. But God is not just a doing God. He is an explaining God. There's a service that I learned at Valley Church. I didn't know about it until I got there. But it turns out Christians have been celebrating this for centuries. It's called a tenebrae service. It's celebrated on Good Friday. And tenebrae is just a Latin word that is the plural form of darkness or obscurity. Think about the veiled nature of things. After each reading about Jesus' suffering in a tenebrae service, a different candle is extinguished. And it goes all through the service until finally you are sitting in complete darkness. You're dismissed from a tenebrae service, asked to be in complete silence and darkness in a spirit of solemnness. It reminds me actually of the crowds who go to watch the show that we heard about last week. They go to watch the show, the spectacle. What happens? Darkness overcomes at midday. And they leave beating their breast in anguish. They're sorrowful. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. If Jesus is veiled at his birth, how veiled is Jesus and the meaning of what's going on in his death? I want you to just capture all of this in your mind as we look this morning. You know, all of it would be lost on us if God didn't graciously explain what was going on. Luke, like the other Gospels, records much explanation leading up to the suffering, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps the most potent and portable has to do with the idea of seeds. Okay, Jesus talking. I want you to turn to John 12. Leave your finger in Luke 23 for a minute. Turn to John 12 because I want you to see it, and I want you to see where I'm getting this. Because this is, this is sitting here for us. This is just waiting to be discovered. John chapter 12, verse 20. It says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Let me pause here and tell you why I'm including this in the reading. Greeks are outsiders. They're non-Jews. And Jesus is about to drop some truth on them that affects them. It involves them. 
A message that he is king of the whole world, not just king of the Jews. But his message is a shocking message. It still is. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's the prerequisite for glory and fruit bearing? Death and burial. Hear me. The reason the shocking, the the message of Jesus is so shocking is this, that the path to glory, the path to life is through death. How much fruit did Jesus's death bear? Jesus is a seed that goes, uh, that's dead and buried, and these Greeks are included in it. Fruit that explodes across the whole world and is still happening today. Much fruit is being born as we speak. But first, death and burial, just like a seed. It is required for new life. You see, a Savior can't be properly understood without seeing the severity of our dilemma. Spare the harsh uh, reality of your lost and straying soul, and you are spared the life and the rescue that is needed by you. Harsh truth is a prerequisite for hopeful truth. Burial comes before resurrection. Oh, there's so much to say about this, but I'm going to move on uh, because I want you to see these, these two classes of disciples. Um, and, and we're going to look at sort of two very different types of disciples, which, which shows some really cool things. All right, so number one is Joseph uh, of, the, of the Jewish council. So this is found in verse 50. Uh, it says this, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, listen, who had not consented to their decision and action. What decision and action was that? That was to put Jesus to death. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. You want to talk about an unlikely convert. He's a member of the Jewish council that just murdered Jesus. And now he steps out of the shadows of fear, of doubt, of hiding, of of being a politician and sort of appeasing people around him. And he publicly identifies with Jesus. Think about it. They're going to want to know, where did the body of Jesus go? We want to make sure that you know, his disciples don't try to prop him up or say anything because they were talking about resurrection. They're going to know. It went to Joseph of Arimathea's grave. This is something like a grand wizard of the KKK suddenly on the news linking arms with Martin Luther King walking in Selma. All of a sudden, he is publicly there with Jesus, public enemy number one of the council that he sits on. I've never really seen how explosively courageous this man's faith is in the darkest hour. What he's doing is he's acting out what baptism is all about. 
Baptism is going public with what's already gone on inside. It's giving physical outer life expression, using your body to worship and say, I publicly identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection to new life of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing when I get baptized. By the way, a little hint. I always like to tell people when I'm baptizing them, um, I say, I will not leave you under the water because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And I always say it with a wild twinkle in my eye so it leaves them just a little bit on edge realizing this is a really powerful moment. But I get people down, I get them all the way down. If you have the water hitting your ears and you try to pull up and you have me baptizing you, I'm gonna shove you under the water because Jesus was buried. We're gonna get you all the way wet. We're not leaving your bangs like dry. Okay, you're going all the way under. That's what the word baptism even means. All right. So Jesus comes for the sick, for the helpless, for the sinners. And what I want you to see in this passage, it's so crazy. The helpless, the sick, the sinners, they come in all shapes and sizes. Did Jesus come for the poor? Yes. Did Jesus come for the exceedingly wealthy? Yes. The insider? Yep. The outsider? Absolutely. The utter rebel? Yeah. The religious? Uh Uh-huh. Sinners who are sick and helpless and need the good doctor to rescue them or else all hope is gone. They come in all shapes and sizes. Let's look at a penniless rebel. Penniless rebels receive Jesus gladly and are received gladly by Jesus. Uh, Exhibit number one, the thief on the cross. I mean, he's dying on a cross. He's rebellious. He was hurling insults earlier at Jesus on the cross with the other guy. And yet penniless rebels gladly receive Jesus. How about the wealthy religious types? Do they get saved? Absolutely. They receive Jesus gladly, and Jesus gladly receives them into his family. Exhibit A would be Joseph of Arimathea. Look at the progression of this man's faith, and I'll show you why we know he's wealthy in a second. He's a member of the council, so he's pretty religious. He's using the forms that were given to him from, from, from childhood. These were good things, by the way. The high council, the Sanhedrin, these are good things. Authority is a good thing, gifted by God. Wicked people do wicked things with good institutions. I won't say anything more about that. Be on guard. The text says that he's a good and righteous man before God. He didn't go along with his peers. His was a dissenting voice in the vote, and yet things moved forward. It says that he's expectantly attentive to the kingdom of God. I love that that that's written in there. It's this sort of ready, watchful uh, readiness. Have you ever talked to someone who doesn't name Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but as you're talking to them, you're realizing this person is seeking after the things of Jesus. They just don't know it yet. I just need to put a name to what they're looking for. Those are people that you go to pick the fruit and they fall and you've got to catch it because they're so ripe, they're so ready. They say yes before you even finish the pitch about what Jesus and being a Christian is all about. Here's what I want want you to see in this text that's so moving to me. He decides in this critical moment where people are being put to death for their allegiances to step into the light and tend to Jesus. What are his peers up to? We just saw this in Luke 23. Look at verse 35. It says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. The rest of his buddies, his peers, they're scoffing at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, utter mockery. 
utter slander. You know, the old Joseph would have simply refrained from doing that and thought it was okay. Maybe he would have, on his best days, spoken up and said not to do anything. You know what the new Joseph is doing? He acts decisively, boldly, irreversibly to publicly identify with Jesus. Makes a request to get his body and then puts him in his tomb. This is right when Jesus is being murdered as a heretic. You know, John describes Joseph's transformation. All right, one of you who's on live stream, write this verse down so others can look it up later. I forgot to put it in the notes. John 19.38, okay? Either turn there or just listen carefully. John 19.38, this is John describing the same scene. Listen to it. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, watch this, but secretly for fear of the Jews, sold Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. We love saying this around here. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are means there's no requirements to come to Jesus. Don't try to clean yourself up before you get to the doctor. Don't heal yourself so you can be presentable to the doctor. Nonsense! Come as you are, sinner, wealthy, poor, Insider, outsider, feeling it, not feeling it. Come as you are. But I promise you, to follow Jesus means to be on the move. Do not stay where you are. Don't stay in the pig slop. Jesus is going to get you cleaned up. Jesus is going to get you healed up. You're going to be able to use your legs and walk in this life. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Joseph's faith grew right here in the dark. The darkest moment in the story, the biggest disappointment, is where his faith skyrocketed. The test of faith came, and this time he passed. No more living in secret. No more fear of man. We also see that Joseph is not alone. In the John passage, verse 39, very next verse, Nicodemus also, listen, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. We remember that in in, uh, John 3, where he comes secretly. Because he's got a question about being born again and new life. And he's kind of curious about this. But he does it in secret. He does it at night. Why? Because he's fearful of man. Nicodemus also, who had early come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About 75 pounds in, in weight. Do you see that bold faith in one person stirs bold faith in another person? Both of these men are on the Jewish high council, both are secretly buying into what Jesus is saying. But they still are fearful. And in this moment, they both emerge as courageous men who risk much to honor Jesus. The stakes are high, the test is presented, and their loyalty and their love for Jesus comes bursting forth in a powerful way. Truth set them free from what? From a culture of fear and intimidation and doubt and hiding and secret. The truth unlocked them from that prison. These would-be villains in the story are disciples who move toward Jesus in his need. They, They do what they can in the moment. It's dark. They are confused. There's there's no doubt disappointment going on in their soul spiritually it is the bleak of midwinter which the song says if i were a shepherd 
I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet, what can I give him? That's the question before them. That's the question before us. Joseph and Nicodemus brought what they had. What did they sacrifice to honor Jesus? Two things, their position and their possessions. I don't think you get invited back into the KKK if you're chumming it up with Martin Luther King, right? Like your position's over. So they sacrifice their positions and their possessions, their wealth they bring to care for Jesus in the best way they know how. What does Joseph bring? Joseph provides a grave cave. What's a grave cave? Well, if you're a criminal dying there, normally you'd be taken out to the garbage dump and just burned. That's what happens to the body of criminals. If you've got some money, you buy a little tombstone. If you've got loads of money, you buy an entire cave that's for you to be buried in one day with your family. Sort of the grave plot idea going ahead. If you're really wealthy, you don't share it with anyone else. Man, Joseph of Arimathea had his own grave cave. This is a guy with wealth. He's already provided that for himself and his family. What's he doing? He is gifting that to Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus is only going to use it for a little bit of time. He probably thinks it's a longer time. But he comes and brings his possessions, his wealth, and he says, what can I do to honor a dead person? I'll give him my grave cave. So that's what what he does. What does Nicodemus do? He brings myrrh mixed with aloe, 75 pounds of it. Myrrh in those days was used to embalm the dead. It sort of hides the, the stench of dying, decaying flesh. If it sounds familiar at Christmas time, it's because that's one of the three gifts mentioned that the wise men bring to Jesus. Frankincense, gold, and myrrh. You know, some commentators talk about the fact that gold and frankincense were really common to come and bring and honor a a king. Myrrh, there's some mixed ideas about what that is. Could it be that God who knows the beginning from the end, who's telling the story and, and there's little bits that unfold just the way life does, could it be that he's announcing the burial of Jesus at his birth? Could it be that he's saying right here at the bed, the most honoring moment of this baby is that he's gonna die and in glorious death, but in being buried, he's going to be raised to life, and it's going to bear much fruit. You know, I get invited to a lot of hospitals to hold babies, and that's the part Becky loves to come with me the most. I think I'd stop getting invited if I started talking about their death, right? Like right when I'm holding, oh, you're going to die someday. That little flesh, it's on the clock right now. Man, that word would get out, and I would no longer have that as part of my role as pastor. This baby was born to die. Not like the rest of mankind, a very unique special death. And we know that because God is gracious enough to explain it to us. What are the gospels but describing the words and deeds of Jesus? What are the letters that follow in the New Testament? They are letters, they are explanations looking back on these events, giving explanation to it under divine script of the Holy Spirit using people saying this is what is going on in all of this. All right, let me move on to the hometown women. Look at verse 54 with me. It says, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Let me just show you a couple of quick things here. Luke constantly is showing us that outsiders get in on the good things of God. 
What's powerful about this passage is women who Christianity has done more for women in world history than any other thing you can imagine. But women get in on this. They are mentioned over and over and over. God takes great pains through the gospel writers to show the prominence of women in a society where that would have actually been a detraction to write them into the story were it not for God. Remember Mary, not Mary's uh, Jesus' mother, but, but Mary at Bethany prepares Jesus' body for burial. That's what Jesus says about it. She anoints him with oil. And she wipes his feet with her, with her hair and her tears. And Jesus attaches that to preparation for his burial. A woman. And now women are tending to the body of Jesus. Honoring him in the best way they know how. I want to recommend a little Christmas movie to you. You don't have to be a kid to like it. It's really heartwarming. It's a little bit quirky. Our family loves it. It just came out a few years ago. It's called Angela's Christmas. And in Angela's Christmas, I won't spoil it for you, but it's about this little girl, and she is moved to care for baby Jesus. It's a little quirky, and the theology may be a little bit off, kind of like the disciples of Jesus, kind of like myself. But you are moved by her attentive care for Jesus. And it reminds me of these women. She would have grown up, Angela would have grown up to be one of these kinds of women, just saying we have to care for Jesus in his time of need. I had a daughter one time, I believe it was Tegan, and I'm tucking her in and we're praying to Jesus, and she stops and in just her innocent childlike way, she says, Daddy, who prays for Jesus? We always pray to Jesus, but we should be praying for him. Who prays for Jesus? Do you see her heart? Her heart is that Jesus is cared for. Just like any relationship, you want to care for them even as they care for you. These women teach us the same thing. They've, they, they've not run off in fear. Let me show you something really powerful. They're here at the end. Can't say that for a lot of the men. They are here at the end. They're disappointed. They're no doubt distraught. And yet they are honoring Jesus by caring for his dead body. And one other thing. I want you to see that they are trusting the truth. They're using the key of truth. They are trusting God's commandments in the dark. This is the darkest day of the story for them. And yet, what did they do? They rested. What is the Sabbath but a gift? The Sabbath has always been a gift to his people to say, stop! Stop and rest. Let your Sabbath be a day of worship, of rest, of play. Change frequencies. Set it all down. Remember your place. Remember my place. You are not what you do. Rest. I find it so incredibly moving that in this dark and disappointing time, they keep following, they keep obeying, they keep their weekly worship. There's something for us to learn here, church. They didn't fret about, keep doing it, saying, I'm sure God will understand. They stopped, and that's exactly what was needed. Let me close by asking this question of you. Fill in this sentence. Blank is buried today. What in your story is in the grave, is dead and buried, seems that all hope is lost? Maybe it's hope for the future. Maybe you would say, man, civility in my city is dead today. Maybe you'd say it's my marriage, a friendship, a dream. What is dead and buried today? 
You know, Jesus' tomb tells us plainly that God turns corpses into seeds of glory. God is able to do far more, catch this, than we can even think or imagine to ask him. God's that big. He's that capable. So what might just come from these things that we think are dead? 2020 has been a year of suffering, a year to test us on many fronts. Church, let's trust that God is able to use this year to cause us to grow, to graduate us along. Talk about a pop quiz. God is at work in the dark. Disciples grow through disappointment. While praying for yourself, for your family, for your church, remember there are Christians today who are attending graveside services for their brothers and sisters because they name the name of Jesus Christ. Pray for them too, for the faith of those who remain, that they'd be strengthened. 2 Corinthians 1.8 says this, just listen carefully. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is Paul writing. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us depend not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Do you see how he attaches it back to this moment? This is what it means to put the truth into practice. Verse 10, he goes on to say, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Church, think back on how God's delivered you and make this statement with Paul. He will do it again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. You know, the burial of Jesus is proof positive that he really died. If you're an apologist and you're giving defense for the faith, this destroys the so-called swoon theory of the enemies of the cross. The swoon theory is he didn't really die. There's all kinds of historical stuff that we can't argue or else we'd go after that, but he didn't really die. He was asleep. Nonsense. He was buried. He was wrapped up like a mummy and he was put in a grave cave for a long enough time that he wasn't sleeping. The burial of Jesus is also proof positive that God really is in control, that even through the darkest times in world history, God is always at work on his time. So we're led to trust. I give you three things. These are in your notes as a a way of action in the dark. What can we do to to, uh, put some of this into action? Number one is this, turn on the light. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Use the truth. It's available to light your path. Number two is this. Turn to the light. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Be watchful and waiting, looking to the eastern sky when it's dark to say, I know the sun's coming up. I don't know when, but I am orienting my life 
here in the dark, to be watchful and waiting for God to work in this. Oh, there's so much here for us, church. I hope you engage with this, sit with this. By the way, pray, don't worry. I keep telling people, don't fret, don't worry. Flip that around to to prayer. There's a sermon title. I haven't read the sermon or seen it, but it caught my eye. It says, why pray when you can worry? That's a great sermon title. I mean, it makes you just immediately like, let me take stock of how much worry has helped my life. What good fruit has come from all my worry? Man, lay that down and pray. Here's the third one. Walk in the light. Psalm 89 says this. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Does the light show you that danger is on all sides and you need to remain still and wait because that's what the light is revealing? Then act accordingly. Jesus is going to tell his disciples when he rises, wait here in Jerusalem for a helper. Don't you move. And they do it. Does the light let you know that safety and goodness and life are straight ahead on this narrow path? Then get moving. Walk in the light. Live in accordance with reality. Does the light tell you to put something down or pick something up? Friend, obey, act right now, do it. By way of a closing prayer, I want to read a little devotional. It's kind of odd. I've been rereading some, uh, some devotionals for Easter as we've been preaching through this, even though it's Christmas time. Uh, and, and this is from, uh, this might be from Henry Nowen. Uh, but he's on a prayer retreat, and each day he's sort of um, writing down some journal entries. And this prayer, just, I found it really moving um, sometime late last week, and I just wanted to read it to you as a closing prayer. It says this, Oh, dear Lord, what can I say to you on this holy night? Is there any word that could come from my mouth, any thought, any sentence? You died for me. You gave all for my sins. You not only became human for me, but also suffered the most cruel death for me. Is there any response? I wish that I could find a fitting response, but in contemplating your holy passion and death, I can only confess humbly to you that the immensity of your divine love makes any response seem totally inadequate. Let me just stand and look at you. Your body is broken, your head wounded, your hands and feet are split open by nails, your side is pierced, your dead body now rests. It's all over now. It is finished, it is fulfilled, it is accomplished. Sweet Lord, gracious Lord, generous Lord, forgiving Lord. I adore you. I praise you. I thank you. You have made all things new through your passion and death. Your cross has been planted in this world as a new sign of hope. Let me always live under your cross, O Lord, and proclaim the hope of your cross unceasingly. Amen.